0: Now, as we move from Exodus 20 into Exodus 21 and beyond, we are moving from apodictic law into casuistic law. Apodictic law refers to regulations in the form of divine commands. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Casuistic law refers to the application of those principles in concrete situations. So, casuistic law is really case law based on actual precedent. As always, Kevin DeYoung says it simply and memorably. He says, the Ten Commandments are clear, definite, absolute standards of right and wrong. Once you get to chapter 21, we shift to application.
1: Welcome back to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. The Ten Commandments set out clear, definite, absolute standards of right and wrong. But how should those standards be applied in everyday situations? That's the matter we turn our attention to today in Exodus chapter 21. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your
0: word is a
1: lamp unto my feet.
0: If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 21. I mentioned at the very beginning of this series that the book of Exodus is divided into two parts. The first half of the book recounts the story of how God redeemed a people for himself out of the land of Egypt. The second half of the book recounts how God instructed those saved people in a manner of life, worship, and behavior that was pleasing to him. The book of Exodus, therefore, almost feels like two entirely separate books. There's a a salvation story in the first half, and then a series of laws, instructions, and precepts in the second half. Our personalities may incline more to one or the other, but both are important for us as the people of God. We are interested in how God works to save and redeem a people for himself, and we ought also to be interested in how we should live in response to the wonderful things that God has done for us. So we are thankful for both parts of this glorious book. Now, as we move from Exodus 20 into Exodus 21 and beyond, we are moving from apodictic law into casuistic law. Apodictic law refers to regulations in the form of divine commands. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Casuistic law refers to the application of those principles in concrete situations. So casuistic law is really case law based on actual precedent. As always, Kevin DeYoung says it simply and memorably. He says, the Ten Commandments are clear, definite, absolute standards of right and wrong. Once you get to chapter 21, we shift to application. Closed quote. That's exactly right. Now, I mentioned that most scholars think that the story in Exodus 18 about Moses sitting in judgment all day and then Jethro suggesting a a slightly different approach was actually placed out of sequence for reasons that we discussed at the time. But for just a moment, imagine that scene once again. After the giving of the Ten Commandments, imagine a long line of people waiting to bring their particular cases to Moses. Moses has already heard the Ten Commandments and he is able to receive divine application by means of revelation. He's able to consult with God, as it were, in terms of how the Ten Commandments should be applied in particular scenarios. So he gives a ruling, and that ruling is then written down as a binding and guiding piece of case law. That is exactly what we are encountering here. This is binding precedent. This is inspired application of the law. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him, sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever." When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Now, in our day and age, we are, of course, obligated to say a few things here about the attitude of the Bible in general toward the institution of slavery. Obviously, we, we can't talk about that at great length in this format, but neither can we just ignore the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Slavery is rightly considered an abomination, and so we are shocked and horrified to see it spoken of here in anything less than a condemnatory tone. Now, of course, it's true that slavery in the ancient world was very different than it was in 18th and 19th century America, for example, And that tends to be our lens for thinking about this issue. Slavery in Bible times, for example, had nothing to do with race. The first slave we meet in the Bible is Hagar, who was an Egyptian enslaved to a Hebrew. The next slave we meet in the Bible is Joseph, a Hebrew enslaved to an Egyptian. So slavery in Bible times had nothing to do with race or color. It was circumstantial. You became a slave in those days generally for one of three reasons— Either you lost a war, you broke a law, or you went personally bankrupt. These laws here are understood in Jewish tradition as relating to a Hebrew slave who had stolen property and had become a slave for six years in order to pay off that which was owed. So, slavery in Bible times was very different. They they didn't have jails. They didn't have military camps for prisoners of war. They didn't have bankruptcy court. So, of course, they had to do things a little bit differently. The point is, the Bible meets us where we are and takes us somewhere better. And that is what we see over the course of the Bible. The Bible doesn't just say one thing about slavery. It begins to address slavery at the point of reality. Then it begins to regulate it and then undermine it. And before you're done, it has virtually abolished it. By the end of the New Testament, we have Paul writing a letter to Philemon, demanding that he accept back his converted slave, not as a slave, but as a beloved brother in Christ. Rebecca McLaughlin puts it this way. She says, biblical ethics radically undermines human slavery and creates a whole new paradigm within which every Christian is both a slave and deeply free. That's the message of the Bible when viewed in its totality. Now, God willing, we'll come back to this topic in greater depth in an excursus episode at some later date. For now, we need to see what the Bible is saying here in terms of regulating slavery. Now, the issue of slavery was already introduced in the Ten Commandments. In the Fourth Commandment regarding the Sabbath law, it says that slaves too are to be extended the gift of Sabbath. The Jews were not to rest by merely downloading labor to their slaves. The slaves too are human beings, and they also should be afforded the chance to rest in worship. The Passover laws, which we met earlier, likewise embrace the slave. If the slave has been circumcised, then he too is to be allowed to participate in Passover. And thus begins the subversion of the institution. You cannot enslave a person beside whom you worship. Not for long. Not if you are worshiping in spirit and truth. That's for sure. So the law has already acknowledged the humanity and the rights of the slave, which is right there, a quantum leap forward in terms of the ancient world. In this passage, we see also that slavery is term limited. A Hebrew cannot be enslaved for more than six years. Again, this is why in Jewish circles, these particular regulations were understood to have been inspired by the case of a Hebrew person having stolen someone else's property So this is case law related to the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. And if you do, this section of the text is saying you might find yourself working off your debt for the next six years. That's what this is. Nevertheless, the slave must be treated the entire time as a human being. If the slave is a woman, she's not to be treated as a prostitute. You must treat her well. Well. Uh, the, The case being imagined here is a man who sold his daughter into slavery in a home because he himself was not able to provide for her. She must not be treated as a prostitute. In fact, the situation envisioned is that she has been given as a bride, either to the master or to the master's son. But in any case, she must be treated with dignity. She must be treated with humanity. That's the basic idea being communicated here. We jump back into the text at verse 12. This section from verse 12 to 17 deals with three capital offenses murder, gross dishonoring of parents, and kidnapping. Another application of the eighth commandment. Verse 12 Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So here we see the distinction between what we call manslaughter here in the West with first-degree murder. First-degree murder implies some premeditation. It implies malice of forethought. That is murder. But if two people get into a shouting match and one guy hits the other guy and he dies that is not typically treated as murder. Again, we can imagine such a scenario being brought to Moses and we can imagine him going to God for a divine application, which is now being codified here as casuistic law. Verse 15, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Here, we imagine a grossly rebellious son being brought by relatives or concerned citizens to Moses who hears that this person has actually dared to strike his parents, a clear and egregious violation of the fifth commandment. In such cases, the offending individual should be put to death. Now, perhaps a, a quick word is necessary here in terms of contemporary application. One of the things that changes as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament is the fact that in the Old Testament, the church was also a nation, In the New Testament, the church exists inside every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. That's the trajectory, and so certain changes are required to accommodate that trajectory, and one of those changes has to do with the application of the civil law. Christians in Romans 13 are required to obey the laws of whatever nation they find themselves operating within. So, We don't look to impose the laws of Israel on our fellow citizens. We can, of course, encourage our leaders to be instructed by this model community, but our obligation now, according to Romans 13, is to submit to the lawful civil authorities that we are under. Now, that isn't to say that these laws, therefore, have no application in the church. Of course, they do but they must be transposed into a New Testament key. And when that happens, we naturally understand that actually execution becomes excommunication. In a New Testament context, we would say that a person who does not repent of their dishonoring abuse of their parents should be disciplined and excommunicated from the church. Such a person shows him or herself to be an unbeliever. If they continue to act in this reprehensible way.
1: Pastor Paul, let me jump in here because I feel like that's really important for people to understand. These chapters are about how to apply the principles contained in the Ten Commandments. But in order to do that, we have to think about our particular context and Our context today as New Testament believers living in the 21st century sure is different than the context of someone living in Israel in the 12th century BC. So how do we do that? How do we transpose these principles into a New Testament key?
0: Yeah, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Well, as I mentioned in the program audio, we have to recognize the fundamental fact that in the Old Testament, the church and the state were one and the same. But now in the New Testament, the church exists inside every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet earth. So we can't execute blasphemers, for example. In the New Testament, the king bears the sword, not the church.
1: Now you're referring, I think, to Romans 13 there, right? Yeah.
0: In Romans 13, verse four, the apostle Paul says, he, referring to the king or the magistrate, he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, closed quote. So the, the king or the magistrate has special authority from God to use violence and force to restrain and punish evil. The church doesn't have that. So when the guy in 1 Corinthians is committing incest, the apostle Paul doesn't say, "Uh, when you guys get together next Lord's Day, drag that guy to the front of the church and cut his head off. No, he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Purge the evil person from among you, close quote. So execution in the Old Testament becomes excommunication in the New Testament. But the same moral principles apply. Incest is no more acceptable to God in the New Testament than it was in the Old. But the application of that moral principle is necessarily different.
1: But there is a sense still in which that it's still a capital crime, right? It's just that the actual sentencing is somewhat delayed.
0: Yeah, exactly right. In the New Testament, the act of excommunication actually serves to warn the individual that if they persist in this behavior, they will face eternal damnation at the final judgment. That's what Paul means when he says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5.
1: All right. So same moral principle, same ultimate sentence, but slightly different application and timeline on the results. Is that right?
0: Yes. The church has been charged with the proclamation of the gospel. We are to warn the sinner and point to the cross of Christ. If the sinner rejects that warning and rejects that offering, then they will have to stand before God as the judge and answer for their actions and rebellion. And the standard on that day will be the age-old standard of the law.
1: All right, that makes sense. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 16.
0: Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. So here again is another important development in the biblical perspective on slavery. So much of North American chattel slavery would be forbidden outright by this verse. The slaves in America were generally kidnapped in West Africa, which the Bible explicitly here forbids. Term-limited slavery to pay off a debt is one thing, Racial slavery that is fueled by vicious kidnapping and man-stealing is quite another. By the way, this is also forbidden by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1.10. Verse 17, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Again, this is case law, obviously, related to the fifth commandment. It further illustrates the importance that the Bible assigns to God's concern that we honor the aged in general and our parents in particular. Verse 18. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. So this is a good illustration of casuistic law. This was clearly something that actually happened. A guy hit another guy, and the guy didn't die, but he was laid up in bed for a couple of days, but then he did recover and regain his mobility. So how do you want us to handle that, Moses? Well, Moses said, we won't treat it as a homicide, as a murder, but the attacker will need to pay a significant fine. Fair enough. Verse 20. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. So here we see that a slave had legal rights, which again is a quantum leap forward in terms of conditions prevalent in the ancient world. Hebrew scholar Nahum Sarnas is here. This law, the protection of slaves from maltreatment by their masters, is found nowhere else in the entire existing corpus of ancient Near Eastern legislation. Quote. So again, the Bible meets us where we are and then begins to move us forward. And that's what we're seeing here. The situation, of course, envisions a Hebrew man who, again, stole something he should not have, for which he did not have money to repay and who thus is sentenced to a maximum of six years of slavery. His family, who probably lived nearby, would be watching, of course, to see that he was fairly treated. And if he was killed, this law is saying that his family members would have the right to seek justice for their kinsmen. That's a massive development. Slaves have rights. They lose some of their rights, of course, when they become slaves, but not all. That is important for us to see. Verse 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, an eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, Wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Interestingly, almost all ancient legal codes had something on the books with respect to injury done to pregnant women. The situation here is that two men have been in a fight and have foolishly endangered a pregnant woman. The men who have thus recklessly endangered this woman and her children, it, its plural children, obviously recognizing the possibility of perhaps of twins or, perhaps recognizing that the injury done might not just be to this child, but to future pregnancies. So they've foolishly endangered a woman and her children. They are to be punished on the principle of lex talionis. Now that phrase, lex talionis, comes from this passage. It is the law of the tooth, meaning that the punishment should be geared to the amount of damage done. The reckless man will be punished at one level if the woman and her child or children are fine, but then at a much higher level if there has been significant injury or even loss of life. The principle is that the punishment should fit the crime. And that principle remains embedded in most modern law. Thanks be to God. Verse 26. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. So again, this law forbids the harsh treatment of slaves. Interestingly, the ancient Jews found the laws of the Bible with respect to slavery incredibly restrictive. In the Talmud, for example, the rabbis say, that he who buys a Hebrew slave buys himself a master. The Bible totally changed what it meant to own a slave. So again, there is a trajectory here. Something met is regulated, then essentially undermined, and then eventually substantially abolished. That's the trajectory here. Thanks be to God. Verse 28, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, The ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Here we're dealing with the issue of liability. A person can't be held responsible for the actions of an animal unless the person knew that the animal was inclined to dangerous behavior and did nothing about it. In that case... The person may be held liable. How much you know determines how much you pay. The same principle applies still today. Verse 33. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies... Then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. Again, we can easily visualize the actual scenarios that lie behind these instances of casuistic law. These things happened, and Moses gave a judgment. The first matter about the pit deals with reckless endangerment. If you dig a hole, you have to put a fence around it. Or today we would say, you better put up some caution tape. If you don't, then you are liable. The second example is another case of liability. When animals injure each other, losses are to be shared unless you knew in advance that your animal had a tendency to act in a dangerous manner. Again, the more you know, the more you are responsible for the same principle applies in a wide variety of potential contexts. Douglas Stewart says usefully, Ancient laws gave guiding principles or samples rather than complete descriptions of all things regulated. Ancient people were expected to be able to extrapolate from what the sampling of laws did say to the general behavior the laws in their totality pointed towards. Close quote. And thanks be to God.
1: And thank you, friends, for joining us for another episode of Into the Word. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. And don't forget to tune in to Life 100.3 next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your Word